In brightest day, in blackest night, all other podcasts tremble in fright. Losers cower before the power. Oranges lust and blues you can trust. Indigos feel and white ones heal. Yellow scare and green ones dare. That sapphire love and black hands glove will rock your foundation without hesitation. Chad and Mars face evil's minds. Respect their power for they'll make you see the light. Hi everybody, I'm Chad Volkelman. I'm Mark Marble. And this is the Lantern Cast, episode three sixty six. That's right. What are we talking about tonight, Mark? We're doing another Silver Age issue tonight, Chad. Green Lantern twenty four. Why this one? Because it had a cool cover. <laughs> and and all kidding aside, even though that is it is true, but then again, it's a Silver Age. Almost all the covers were somewhat appealing uh and not and not in the bs kind of way that modern comics became <laughs> uh that mm. it also has a it also is the introduction to one of lame though he is one of greenland the the legends in small and small letters of green lantern's pantheon of villains i mean that's debatable lame's debatable well uh, we'll get into it uh, uh but after that what are we talking about anything else I'm assuming you finished. I finished. Okay, so we're going to be... T- <laughs> <laughs> Always, Mark. Always. <laughs> Booyah! Uh, that's for a different podcast. Uh, I We're going to be talking about... Uh, a lo- well, I'm not even going to go where we were going to go, just because I want to be funny. Uh, nah, screw it. We're going to talk about Jessica Jones Season 3, and Jessica Jones basically as a, as a whole, because... For multiple reasons, uh, but I but I was watching season three, that it remind it reminded me of some of a valuable lesson that some people could have learned when it comes to pacing and and setting storylines up for, for proper payoff. Uh, and we're probably going to talk and we're going to talk a little bit about Endgame box office re-release box office since we didn't get to record last week. So at least now my opinion hasn't changed. Now there's just money. Now we actually have real numbers to back up the. Uh, what I was going to say. So it's not Monday morning quarterbacking, as Chad knows, because I was not a fan. I, I was not a big proponent of this re-release at this time, anyway. So, and <laughs> I'm definitely not Monday mor- morning quarterbacking. Uh, but other than that, that should be. That should be. I just had a curiosity. Did you watch the Jumanji trailer? I have not. I haven't seen Welcome to the Jungle yet either, so it doesn't matter. That that is kind of true. That is true. Even though I don't necessarily know, but you have missed some context, yes, for the trailer. It was. It, I I thought it was. I thought it was good. I did like Welcome to the Jungle when I saw it, so, but I, I thought the trailer did a good job at throwing things up in the air from maybe some expectations. Yeah. Um, for those of you listening, if you're curious as to why you may be hearing this early, uh, I didn't discuss this with Mark, but Uh-oh. it's just it's just going to be a fact of, of the matter of, of the way things are happening this week. Uh, this episode will probably release Wednesday night or Thursday instead of Friday because of the 4th of July. Okay. Yeah. So that's just because I won't have access to the tools I need on the time I usually have access to them to post episodes. 
So uh, basically, uh, everything except for the coding of how the episode posts to iTunes, I can do through my MacBook. But uh, the, the the coding itself uh, is is something I, I need a PC, uh, something running Windows uh, for which is my work computer. So since uh, I won't be at work Thursday and I'm usually off Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's uh, we'll just release it then. Plus, we didn't record last week, so you're getting it a day or two early. So congratulations, folks, and happy <laughs> happy 4th of July. <laughs> Besides, they're going to get the bonus, uh, even though, again, it's not going to be any kind of legendary or tr- record-setting or ma- super trend-setting episode, but they're going to have a Ring Cyclopedia episode. Uh, that would they all would have already listened to at this point, hopefully, <laughs> or at least they would know it's out there because as we're recording this, I already, technically speaking, it's already posted on the YouTube page and our our page. I just haven't pushed it on Facebook yet, but it will be past yeah, tense. I saw it already. Yeah, it'll be. I I had two choices, and that's why I went with this one, just because it's the holiday week before it's something that's a little more got a little more. I have two. I had required two ready to go. One's a little more meat on the bones. Um. So for this, so that I wanted to wait for that one. So that's why I did the one that's kind of like more like a just kind of a little fun and not overly not super deep, if you will. So sounds good. Yeah. So we should probably uh, dive into twenty four. Twenty four. Now, mind you, we we did debate several issues here <laughs> about, we did. About, about which one to do based on based on uh, certain limitations. Uh, for me, anyway, because not necessarily. I think with, with, during the Silver Age, I think we both ideally we prefer to do these issues when we have the physical issues in front of us, just <laughs> just for different reasons. Not because it not because it changes the story, <laughs> but it's just it's just the fact that we like it's just kind of fun to go back through the ads and everything. Luckily for me, uh, I've, when it comes to the digital stuff in terms of classic issues, I'm pretty sure most of my Silver and Golden Age stuff still has the ads. That's a plus. Then. That's 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 definitely a, that is definitely a plus when uh, when we have that working for it. But it, I think sometimes it, it is nice to be able to hold the issue in your hand, which is always which is always the case. Uh, so and the cool thing about Green Lantern 24 is unlike I think the last Silver. Age one we did though though that was a good story is that we actually get two stories in this one, <laughs> which is pretty par for the course for yeah, a lot it, of it the is, Silver it Age is, issues. It is par. It is par for the course. It's just that by luck of the draw, the last one we pull, the last one we you know, pulled from the archives to do was just one really really long uh, Flash Green Lantern story. So despite the cover saying the strange world named Green Lantern, and no, it's not Mogo. Though it does remind you of Mogo. Uh, that's not the first issue, the first story in this issue. <laughs> uh, the first story is the shark that hunted human prey. And why is that relevant to people, chat? The shark that hunted human prey? Not the title. What's <laughs> the story that we're going to be doing? Oh, um, why is it relevant? Yes. Am I lo- am I missing something? I think sadly you are. <laughs> what, what what was one of the reasons why we picked this issue? Because it's the first appearance of the shark. Yes, that's it, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cha-ching! Yes, it's the first appearance of the shark in his not 
spectacular, but still typical of the time frame uh, origin story. So, of course, the as is the custom, certainly for Silver Age stories, we begin in media Reyes with Hal Jordan stuff. Trapped in a trapped in a hangar, it's and everything's in, inside is yellow, so he can't. So it's his weakness; he can't do anything. And the shark is talking like the Hulk here, puny human. It's like, and basically tells him that you know you you have no power over anything yellow. You are trapped until until I arrive, pretty much, and then then you're doomed. Uh, so now now we now we flash back uh, to before we got to that part with Hal and uh, Tom. They're driving, basically they're they're heading for a double date. Is that correct? Essentially, but Car- uh, so, yeah, something yeah, Carol, like that. Uh, Tom's wife, Turga, Turga. Uh, but on the way, all of a sudden, Hal starts sweating, and it's like, well, I basically he tells Tom, "You you keep going, and I, I got to take care of something, and I'll catch up." And he leaves. He turns into Green Lantern and flies away. So Tom knows it's something serious. Then we flash to an no pun intended to an atomic uh, an experimental atomic station, which has essentially has a a, a a minor problem, a minor disaster, not a major disaster, not a meltdown, but they definitely have they definitely have a radiation leak, uh, and of course they're over overconfident at first. It's like oh the fallout radiation isn't too intense, too intense, but but there was a tiger shark happened to be swimming off the the coast of Coast City. And of course, that radiation was at least strong enough where he takes it a f- basically a full blast, a full full bore of that radiation, and seemingly that sends him going through evolution like at a really, really, really pa- fast level. So we see him get, getting legs, crawling onto the onto the shore, and we see his features change. He almost he goes from pretty much like from shark to almost like gorilla, and then turns into human, and just keeps kind of really, really mutating. And then we find out that besides mutating and looking like a, a shark wearing like Namor trunks, uh, well, a human with a shark face, kind of in a way, with a pointy nose and fins and the ear on his head, that he has some. He has these weird powers. You know, he can he can create storms and a tree flying in the air. You know, he, he can melt rock, create a volcano. He's super smart. Uh, tell he pretty much has some telepathic powers too, right? Is it? In this, yeah, yeah. So basically, these—I hate to say it—but kind of on this level, it's kind of like your your standard uh, powers that they would they tended to give people back during that time frame when they were exposed to radiation, which kind of was a blank check. I think anything you really wanted somebody to have from a power set perspective, you could you could give via radiation. So, you know, he seeks out. You know, he seeks. Well, he gets all this knowledge, and he's he's super intelligent. There's one driving force inside of him that is you know, that shark instinct to find prey. So now, because his powers are more advanced, that he basically needs to find prey that's more advanced. So, what's the most dangerous prey of all? Of course, hum- humans. So he goes he goes into uh, Coast City, and he really you know, he freaks out. Basically, he he, fr- he looks really weird, even though he's trying to cover up his shark-like features as best as possible. A lot of people get bad vibes off him. All of a sudden, you know, Bill Bowery, who was the heavyweight champion, supposedly he walks in, and uh, the shark makes sure he he come, he bumps into him on purpose. Basically, he's trying he pick he picks a fight with Bowery, but he doesn't really even knock him out. He pretty much just uses his uh, you know telepathic powers to to take him out. Then, while all this is going on, his his vast powers basically find out he's sending his waves out in, basically into the throughout the city or 
and he finds Hal Jordan, he realize, and he finds out who Hal Jordan really is, Green Lantern, and this was kind of cool based on the relation of everything we know, the fact that uh, and my, instinct, my instinct tells me I have found prey. Of course, I can attack at once, but better still, this human needs to ha- this human seems to have no fear. Before I destroy him, I will make him afraid. So that's kind of appropriate, based on especially what we know about you know Hal Jordan now. So this is this is the point in the story where you know basically where Hal had the uh, Hal felt the, t- the telepathic uh, pull, if you will, of the shark, which that's when he was driving with Tom. So that that's that's why he flew off when he did, and basically he he flies you know he flies to Ferris, he recharges his battery. His ring from his battery, and then he gets then he gets trapped in, in the hangar by the shark from that scene we saw right in the beginning of the uh, right in the beginning of the story. The shark shows up in person wearing a really weird outfit. It's almost like he should be a star sapphire wearing that outfit. It, it it's not really good. Uh, so he keeps using his mental powers. He you know he 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 creates you know he he grows super large uh, to intimidate Hal. He grabs Hal and he starts uh. He starts crushing Hal. Hal. Hal realizes that you know that he can't hold on much longer, and he real and he says, "You know, the only thing in here that's not yellow is the air. I've got to use the air itself as a weapon." So he basically the power ring creates this giant electronic magnet, you know, high above the hangar floor, and you know it. It basically just it just pulls, it's just the whole effect of pulling the air, and it just creates you know the suddenness. And then he, the magnet's power gets reversed, and all of a sudden, it basically blasts uh, the shark in the head. Uh, this like a super compressed air projectile, essentially, and that's that stuns him. While he's able to do, you know, able to do that, Hal's kind of trying to take advantage of the situation, but the shark recovers, you know, qu- quickly enough, and he, the shark kind of says, you know, the trouble is, I still haven't instilled enough fear in you, and until I do, I cannot defeat you. So, basically. What he does is he shows him he, which is again on the on the relation of who Hal Jordan really is and what make and what really makes Hal Jordan tick, especially even nowadays. I, I kind of do think this is kind of clever that basically he he Hal's not going to be afraid for himself, but he can be, but he's afraid for Coast City. Coast City has been sealed off uh, with the shark's mental powers, and also you know Carol and Pie, Pie Face, Tom and Turga are all pretty much tra- trapped in there. And he makes he makes it clear that you know nothing can enter the force field, nothing can leave, and so he's he's doing his best to try to instill fear, of course. And and how how realizes he's made a mistake, and he, he, he as he's thinking to himself, it's like he figured that the desperate plight of Pi and Carol would sap my resistance, but instead it only has redoubled my strength of will. Now I know I must defeat this nemesis to save them and the rest of the city. So Hal, thinking outside the box, continues, and he basically uses water vapor. That's the only other material he can use as water vapor in the air. <clears throat> and his, so he so he uses his ring. He creates a device to collect the water vapor and produce it in great quantities, and basically causes instant refrigeration. So when I'm not sure if I really buy coming up with this huge piece of ice, this iceberg that's supposed to be harder than anything. But somehow th- this you know refrigeration tactic of how creates this giant piece of ice, this iceberg. He smashes it into the shark, knocks him knocks him out cold. <clears throat> Hal's ring can now ha- you know can, can take care of him now, and basically Hal uses his ring to reverse the evolution on the shark. He encases him in a Green Lantern 
construct bubble. He flies him off, you know, to uh, the aquarium of Coast City, where supposedly the guards with submachine guns <laughs> are going to watch him one day. Uh, they'll be on watch 24 hours a day. I think now at least the, you know, the nation can feel safe. And then finally, of course, Hal does show up at the home of Carol, getting ready for their date with, uh, and Tom's just there scratching his head. Look at that forehead on Carol. <laughs> yeah, I know. Actually, kind of ironic. She looks like Jessica Jones there. A little bit, a little bit more forehead than Jessica Jones, but yeah. So I've, I've, I've got to skip ahead in continuity history to Green Lantern number twenty-eight for a minute. How so? Uh, the the cover of Green Lantern twenty-eight features the shark, which is weird. You'd think the the shark's first appearance. Uh, would be on the cover of his first appearance, um, but uh, evidently his his first cover appearance is on his second appearance, not his first. Um, but do you have any uh, idea or memory of how the shark uh, gets out of this situation here at the end and becomes a uh, you know evolved again to attack Green Lantern? Not off the top of my head, Chad. I do not remember that. Okay. <laughs> um, which is the answer so, you wanted anyway, right? It's the truth. Yeah, the well, yeah. You really want. <laughs> so reading straight, reading straight from uh, Green Lantern number twenty-eight. Moments before Green Lantern's power ring changed him, the dazed shark had recovered consciousness, transferring his life force to his uniform, and altering his uniform into his apparent self. So. <laughs> Shark's thinking to himself, I'm too weak to battle Green Lantern, but I can still outwit him. I'll make my uniform, I'll become my uniform and make my uniform be me. So essentially he changed consciousness and uh, being exchanged with his uniform. And where do they take the uniform supposedly after this issue? They just folded it up and put it on a chair outside of the tank where the tiger shark uh, is swimming. You know, you know, at least if they had – again, now at least if they had shown that like in that panel of the aquarium, at least that'd be – at least you could buy that. And you can – and you think considering it's only four issues after this damn thing, they could have done that. It's not, a lot, it's not like it's a whole different creator's creative team two years down the road that's going to bring the character back. <laughs> or, oh my goodness! Uh, that, that, that is that is the Silver Age, folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But so the, so another thing I'd like this this uh, this thing is so sixties. It reminded me so much of of um, Underdog actually because <laughs> there was there was a moment where um, you know at the very beginning Hal and Hal and Tom are driving and then he gets stunned and flies away in the narrative box. The just 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 the verbiage and the way it's written there it reminds me so much of the narrator on Underdog, where he, you know, I'll just read from the book. For the astonishing answer to Pie Face's baffled questions, let us turn to an experimental atomic station on an isolated strip of beach, where shortly before, <laughs> <laughs> all the ships at sea. Oh yes. Uh, just reminded me so much of Underdog, um, but uh, I mean, so much '60s here. You know, the radiation being the cause of everything. Um, the the idea, the uh, the idea that things are <laughs> just because the iceberg that he creates is super cool. That makes it the hardest substance on Earth. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's not how like, ice works. It's not, it's not even, it's not, this works it's not like it's even a diamond it's a piece of ice but let's talk let's talk about the shark here you said one of the lamest villains and i you know from a design standpoint you and i can agree on that but this guy 
has telepathic abilities enough to read the thoughts of others, project his thoughts to others, uh, soak up the surrounding knowledge, not just from telepathic abilities, but just raw animal instinct, you know, more attuned in that way. He has the ability to manipulate emotion at the very least instill fear in others. He's got one would suppose the strength of a shark or, or, or viciousness of a shark just based on raw animal traits. But then you throw in the fact that he can essentially manipulate matter. He can change his own size. He can change his own appearance. He can change the stuff that's in the room with, with Hal. He can create a force field around himself. Like he can manipulate matter. And what's something that comes up in a lot of conversations with people who are DC fans. It's how, Two of the most underrated characters in all of DC Comics in terms of sheer power level are Firestorm and Captain Atom. Because realistically, with their matter manipulation powers, they're pretty much some of the most powerful beings on the planet. So if the shark can manipulate matter, that puts him in that weight class. So this dude is, is in terms of sheer power level... One of Green Lantern's most powerful villains, bar none. And if you think about it, he's, his, his origin is sort of similar to Hector Hammond's, only he's got way more power than Hector. Hector may be a stronger telepath, but he's got way more going for him than just telepathy. True, but, they, but obviously we know the shark's powers have changed over time. That's and that and that's true. But in terms of this, his first appearances in the '60s, this 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 dude's no joke. And I hear he's good at card tricks too. But we just don't <laughs> see that in this, in this issue. Maybe at the aquarium, maybe his uniform shows the guards some tricks. I I agree. I I am just looking at it at the prism of how the shark has changed. And in a way, I kind of like the more bestial. Uh, version of the shark, like the one, when, like the Jeff Johns version, a little bit. But that Which might is, be. More, but that might be. To be fair, sorry, that might be more because I'm used. I, I'm more used to that in the sense of reading about it in current continuity and having to go back and revisit. But well, see, this is exactly why I, I kind of like this version of the shark because the Jeff Johns uh, ization of the shark from the '60s is essentially a king shark. True. That is true. The, this, this is why people get the shark and king shark mixed up all the time in modern continuity because of the changes made to the shark. If you want raw, massive, almost might as well have stepped off the animation pages from street shark, that is king shark. Just a massive humanoid shark. Very strong, very powerful in terms of fear, you know, sheer strength. Uh, and massive size. The shark is something else entirely in terms of this and has been for a long time. As a matter of fact, I didn't read the issue because I couldn't find it or can't find any screenshots in terms of the limited, you know, the, the amount of time I did have to research it. Um, but evidently, uh, the shark also made appearances in terms of Aquaman. I mean, surprise, surprise. Um, and he had some sort of powers and intellect and stuff like that in those stories, too. So, you know, the, the, the changes Jeff Johns made to him in the early 2000s, I mean, even though it's almost 2020, that's still relatively recent. 
for most of the Sharks publication history, brief as it may be, he was a completely different character character in terms of uh, his structure and, and what made him him it, in a very different uh, facet than King Shark. So it's a sort of a shame that Jeff sort of turned him into one and the same. That actually is a good point. I that when that that yeah, they really when you really break it down, the Jeff Con of the Shark did pretty much makes him almost indistinguishable from King Shark. So just without these strong telepathic abilities or whatever or anything, I don't know. I guess not. Yeah, even. I mean, there. I, I I did kind of flip through those issues of of Jeff Johns's run. That I think it was like issues four or five or yeah, whatever. It was early on, very early on. <laughs> but he is he's down in a, a green construct uh, cage, shark diving cage, trying to call out the shark, and the shark starts biting at the cage. And he is telepathically communicating with Hal, but it's not like full sentences. It's just broken, like need brain, need power, you know, that sort of a thing. Now, to be fair, if I remember right, the shark was at the time the victim of the same sort of experiments that were run on Hector Hammond by the Crolotaeans. Yeah, that could be right. It's been a while since I... Just like the the, 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 the little evil starlings. It. Yes, I, I remember them. Yes, I remember all that yeah. stuff. I don't. I, I I now that you're saying, yeah, I, I think I kind of vaguely remember that being a part of the the shark appearance too. Obviously, we know it was with Black Hand and, and and Hector Hammond and things like so. That is true. That was a that was a common thread during that time frame. So it's possible that the dumbing down of the shark or the limitation of his powers were strictly as a result of the experiments by the Krolotaeans, and maybe Jeff planned to kind of restore the shark to who he was, but given all that Jeff did in his run, I don't, it just seems like he never got back around to it. But all we have to go on is what we have in publication history. And what we have is the, the, that early appearance, and that's basically it. And from that, he essentially turned him into a King Shark uh, ripoff or... I mean, might as well be the same thing. So true. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you could figure out a way to bring back the shark in modern era, and hell, I mean, like if anybody's going to do it, freaking Grant Morrison? Are you kidding me? Like <laughs> that, that would be the way to do it. Uh, so, I mean, if anybody's listening, Liam Grant, uh, the shark. Let's bring him back as he was, not as a king shark wannabe. Um, do something cool with that. I think uh, there's there's some seriously underutilized potential here with this sort of a character. I mean, I mean, just I mean, I'm I'm, I'm saying it, man. Like in terms of sheer power, if you're going to stick with his Silver Age power set, that is one of the most powerful people that you could come across. Yeah, he does have a formidable set of powers. There's no there's no doubt. Uh, they just got to give him a better leotard, man. <laughs> and that's just that's just a really it, that's not that's not an attractive look. The, the Namor trunks were not attractive either, but the whole uh, Star Sapphire outfit wasn't too good either. <laughs> I just think it'd be cool to see him again. All right, uh, moving on to the next uh, story. Or do you have anything else to say about this one? No, I I it was it was a it was a cute little story. I don't I don't. 
and it's important. Like I said, it's, it, it was important because it introduced it introduces the shark. I don't I don't think it's, and I think that's that's what's in the big picture is probably more memorable than the next story for that reason. But yeah, I mean, and and you you, know, he, he, you can consider him at least based on design a lame villain. But I mean, I, th- I think there's lamer to come in the series, like the menace and the iron lung. <laughs> yeah, and I, th- and I think going back to what I what I kind of said was that as far as uh, this, this 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 sad, it kind of like was the sad part was this is one of Hal's like legendary villains in his <laughs> at least during you know these Silver Ages, like like here's what he we we did our best. That's what's so tragic. Uh, but he's he's. He's okay. Uh, so, move to the second story, which one, which is obviously a lot shorter than the first. Uh, so, this is actually the uh, where we get the cover from, the strange world named Green Lantern. So, the little intro is here. On an isolated, wandering world far off the beaten track in our own galaxy, Green Lantern faced a host of dangers that seemed to press on him from all sides at once. And basically, we see him getting... Hal's like on the coast, uh, on the beach, pretty much, and, he, or, and he's kind of getting a, a cliffside is about to fall on him from one direction. You know, kind of looks like a, almost like a, a fish or a whale face on the cliff. It's like a wave of earth. Yes, and then and then meanwhile there's a wave of uh, from the river. Actually, it's a river. So the river is rising from the banks on the right side, and the cliff side on the left is about. So both of them are basically cu- trying to envelop Hal. But as usual. Uh, this is just telling us what happened somewhere in the story. We flash to Tom's Tom's house and uh, Tom and Turga, and Turga is the opposite of Carol because Turga looks cute, <laughs> she, and she has a normal shaped head, um, even though her hair her hairstyle changes dramatically in two panels. It could, mm-hmm. You could just you could maybe say it's just the angle of the first, but she doesn't have any waves going in that first. It just looks like it's a short haircut, and then the second panel she kind of has a. It's kind of like waving upwards, but I guess Hal pretty much was supposed to join them for dinner, and and Tom pretty much has, has an excuse. Oh, he'll come over later on. He sends his regrets, but we find that the Hal basically was sent off on a mission uh, by by the Guardians, and that's the reason why that he's not there. Now, now again, the story is kind of in, we always get these stories that begin in the middle, but this story is like does this multiple t- times. The the first splash page is the middle of something that's going to happen. We're getting an intro right here into the story, but again, this is not the first for Hal. I mean, the first time we see Hal, that's not even the first time we're going to be pushed even further back in storytelling in a second. But Hal's on the surface of this strange planet, and who does he see? He sees Tom, and it makes no sense. It's like a, it's like he, he, it's, he touches him, so he knows that he's not, it's not just a delusion on that level that he's solid. It's like a... It's like I t- I'm touching him, but I know he can't be here. It's like it's got to be impossible. It's like I got to stay calm. I got to figure this out. It's like, and he, and he was, and he's kind of like thinking back at everything that that had just recently happened, which is where we get the rest of our backstory. <clears throat> that he just, re- you know, he just returned from a mission that the Guardian sent him on, that he completed successfully. As he was flying back, heading towards Earth, he sees this very Earth-like planet actually, and. Uh, and it was a planet that really shouldn't have been there, based on his, um, <clears throat> based on his mapping. That it was, so that's what drew his attention. He got a little closer to take a better look, and all of a sudden he sees like one of the continents on the planet seemingly taking the shape of him as Green Lantern. And all of a sudden, uh, yellow, as Hal gets close enough, yellow missiles 
shoot up from this uh, Green Lantern-looking uh, continent. And the missiles stun Hal. They don't com- they don't hurt him, but they pretty much stun him and make him crash down to the surface of this planet. Uh, and you know, how Hal basically was walking around, and then we get the- and the the planet itself starts attacking him. So we get to see exactly where we came in on the splash page with the cliff and the river. Trying, trying to attack him. You know, he uses his, he uses his ring to deflect that. Then all of a sudden, there's Sinestro. It's like Sinestro is he behind all this? And yeah, Hal's de- Hal's dealing with Sinestro. Then pretty much all of Hal's. Uh, I like I really I really love this. It's like uh, it's like it's like more now more of my foes. Sonar, Doctor Polaris, the Shark have joined Sinestro in the attack against me. It's like the Shark who we just introduced five minutes ago. <laughs> It's like his his greatest enemies, and it's like who just one of them which you've just read about. It's like now he doesn't really say his greatest enemies, I think, but the point is, it's rather convenient to do that. <laughs> so, so house house taking these on, but right at that point when he was taking on the villains, they 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 disappeared, and then it was Tom, and Hal's, You know, that's when Hal again goes tying everything back together when he realizes there's no way this could be really Tom. And then he uses he basically he uses his ring somehow as some like this like this uh, lie detector pretty much to to be able to unmask things and he realizes the figure the figure of Tom collapses you know it's just it was just it was even though it was a material object you know he really wasn't it really was not Tom and then as you know but then incredibly in Green Lantern's power beam as it shoots out it's like a last of basically. The planets are talking to Hal through the power ring, or through the beam specifically. And it's like, uh, finally, I found a way to communicate with you, Green Lantern. And it's like, oh, and Hal doesn't know what the hell's going on. And it's like, uh, it is I, Green Lantern, the planet. <laughs> it's like, uh, please listen, you must hear my story. And it's like, oh, great. No, nobody likes a wordy planet. <laughs> a verbose planet's not a good thing. And he kind of gives this story about, oh, it's like, like, you know, a billion years ago, I entered your galaxy. I don't remember when I began. This kind of—it reminds me of Kurt Russell's little ego talk from Guardi- from Guardians 2, actually. When I read this, it's like I don't know how I blah blah blah, blah. and it's like uh, I've always been alone, and I was always seeking. So it's like perhaps in the star system, I will find another being, you know, like myself. And for a billion years, I searched in vain. And basically, that's why he's in a place where he doesn't belong. And then he then he saw how. It's like he received mental, you know, he mental impressions, and basically you have a really, really lonely planet here, and he was trying to reach out to Hal to communicate, and, and he didn't know how, and he did anything he could, so that's how he ended up with the with the image looking like Hal. That's how you kind of ended up with the the yellow missiles being being shot at him. It's like not to hurt you, Green Lantern, but only to bring you down on my surface, and I succeeded. It's like a and we get the oh, I when the when the river was coming at him from one side and the cliff was falling on him from the other. It's like oh, I wanted to touch you and to embrace you like a friend. <laughs> uh, but soon I realized I might harm you despite your great power. It's like so I changed my tactics. So he kind of probed his mind, and that's how we ended up with the uh, all the false images in his hand. It's like tell me, Green Lantern, can we be friends? <laughs> and Hal's like oh wow, I I really don't know what to do with this. And then he ends up shaking hands with the with the planet who with the branch, yeah, real fun times. But then all of a sudden we get we get this like an, we get an earthquake, and 
The planet says, uh, you will not be harmed, though this terrible vibration might tear me apart. Hal doesn't know what... And, and then we get more wordy backstory from the planet about how, for a long time, something at my very core, basically, had been growing stronger, and I've grown... I haven't really... I've been able to control it for, up till now, but it's getting more powerful, and it threatens to destroy me. Hal goes in and realizes, you know, just the, the immense pressure has been building up in the, in the center of this planet, uh, pretty much a volcano. Or something to the effect of a volcano where it's going to erupt over at some point. So Hal pretty much pours you know water into it using his ring like Niagara Falls, and you know the it, the core kind of fights back, which is interesting. Then Hal just basically uses giant Green Lantern constructed pincers to pull this whole almost like the entire center this of this enormous mass that's going to explode and, and puts it into space. And at this point, uh, it's like, there, I've shot the entire mass clear of this planet. It's in permanent orbit now, and it's going to cool down fast. Hal comes back down. It's like, don't forget, Green Lantern, you have promised one of these days to return and visit me. And Hal's like, I will, quote-unquote, Green Lantern, talking to the planet. It's like, uh, I'll never feel as lonely as I used to now that Green Lantern has provided me with a bright new moon to revolve around and be my constant companion. And Hal, and we, then the very last panels, Hal talking to Tom, and it's like, uh, he goes, uh, it's a, it's a really bit, it's a bit of a story, Pi, I'll tell you on the way home. Trust me, Pi, Tom, don't bother asking. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed it. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite from the Silver Age, just in general, because it's, it's not so ridiculous in terms of the amount of ridiculousness that happens, but one of the things is just so ridiculous that it just sort of defines the whole story. It's just like <laughs> Hal is just shot down, accosted by the elements, nearly killed a couple of times, and it's all because <laughs> this I planet can't, can't contain his excitement that he found another living being. It's just like, I wanted to give you a hug. I almost ended up killing you, but I just wanted to hug you. <laughs> Why won't you love me? <laughs> um, for a long time, this has always been my personal you know, retconned origin for Mogo. I always thought, especially as we got more and more, in, you know, especially as I learned more and more about Green Lantern, and then we learned more about Mogo in terms of, uh, like, the New Guardians when we met Raga, um, and, and learned that Mogo had brothers and sisters, and they were all part of a solar system where all the planets were living beings. Um, I just It just sort of fleshed out in my mind more and more and more, you know, hey, maybe uh, in the 60s, I, I mean, he, this is one of my favorite stories from the Silver Age. Couldn't really tell you why um, in, in particular, but just kind of is. Um, but I still remembered the fact that uh, one of the first things this planet says is, I, I don't know how long I've been here. I don't know what's going on. So once you take the in the new guardians, the introduction of his brothers and sisters and Raga, maybe the destruction of his brothers and sisters was like a, almost like PTSD. Like he blocked a piece of his memory, um, and was wandering throughout the solar system thinking he was alone. Um, and maybe, you know, in, in the story, in the new guardians where we meet Raga and stuff, we're led to believe that his brothers and sisters perished because, in all of their attempts to be benevolent beings and stuff like that, they accepted beings under their surface, but those beings then depleted the resources of the planet and kind of stripped them dry, which stopped their cores, stopped their hearts. And that's, that's why, you know, all of his brothers and sisters died. 
Um, but maybe you could do that also combined with some sort of, since this is a family of sentient, you know, planets, maybe they're susceptible to a specific sort of disease. And that's what is in the core of this planet that Hal gets out. So, you know, you know, you could just, just through tweaking and learning more and more, I, I kind of always fine tuned this story in the back of my head to be the origin of Mogo. So, I mean, it's it's so easy to do just because, hey, living planet calls himself Green Lantern. I mean, it can control his own elements. Uh, you, you know, it's can control his own uh, his his not only his own elements but also his landmass. He can control. He's telepathic. I mean, it it's it's sort of a no brainer. But the fact that nobody's done that yet, sort of. It kind of irks me because it's just like it's so obvious. Someone just do it. When I read this, I, I'm not I'm not gonna lie. When I when I read the story, I did go back and double check one just just for 100 percent peace of mind to make sure that this is was not supposed to be like the first appearance of Mogo or a or it, even though it wasn't called Mogo at the time that it was retconned into being Mogo just because everything you said is exactly true it, it just seemed like it just seemed like it was a natural fit um, yeah. and for those of you playing along at home uh, I don't remember the issue number but it was in a Tales of the Green Lantern Corps backup written by Alan Moore it's called Mogo doesn't socialize that is the first appearance of Mogo Yeah, it's it, but you're but you're right. It's in, it's interesting that they that they didn't you know that they didn't really tie it in or or they could I mean they could have looks like Green Lantern Volume Two One Eighty Eight. Yeah, definitely Alan Moore. Uh, is that also the first appearance of Bullfunga the Unrelenting? It could be. I I mean, I, no, I know Bullfunga is a part of it, but right. is that Bullfunga's first appearance? It's fine. Let's. I'll go look for him too. Uh, I think, yeah. I mean, th- this story is what drew me in when when I was when I was looking at you know these these stories. I mean, the cover drew me in. So it's just it definitely is one of those. Uh, it is more. It is a little more. La- I mean kind of more laughable yes it, it is the same the first appearance gotcha that is, it is it is a little more not that either story is super serious but th- i think this story is just once he's once we start getting into the really uh i can't shut this planet up and he gives us all this background it's like okay uh it's okay i mean i don't really dislike the story it's just but it's it doesn't really i mean it doesn't i mean we, as far as we know, they've never gone. This planet has never been involved again, right? As far as we know, no. So yeah, so it's so up till now. It's kind of a thro- literally a throwaway, kind of a throwaway story there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have much to say about it otherwise. Just, just it's it's potential to be the the retconned origin first appearance of Mogo. Um, but you know, whatever. I mean, I think. I mean, if you're if you're gonna do it. If anything would make uh, Alan more happy, it would be retconning his story to, t- you know, tie into a Silver Age rather than retconning his stories to <laughs> or, or, or doing modern retcons to to 
incorporate his stories into the DCU. Instead of going, hey, we're going to create something new <laughs> out of your stuff, Alan Moore, instead of leaving it be, you know, just going, oh, yeah. Uh, and Alan, you know, his he got his inspiration from or, you know, whatever. The 60s story, <laughs> not something uh, we're, you know, pushing forward for <laughs> the uh, the corporate piggy bank. <laughs> Nothing will make Alan more happy, but you're right. <laughs> if, you, if you had to pick something. You're much less likely to get them all bent out of shape if we do this. <laughs> so what? Do you, so as we always like to do, what are some of your favorite ads in this sucker? <clears throat> or, or ads or other features? Because obviously there are some other things in here just besides. Yeah, I do like the fact that they always give like these little science panel breakdowns in this thing. Um, this one uh, happens, I think, in the middle of a shark story. Yes. If I remember right. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. They talk about how, um, uh, they talk about the Venus flytrap. They talk about radar. They talk about gamma rays. They talk about a Corona. So the fact that they're, you know, educating the kids in a sci-fi story about a space cop is kind of cool. Um, it's, of course, it's always cool to see the ads for other issues and stuff being published by DC. Um, didn't really care much about the toys, but I did like the very first ad page. Um, showing like all the little doodads and stuff that you could buy, like um, magic cards where they hand grenades. <laughs> the, the magic cards add it just. I mean, it tells you how the trick is done. The deck is marked and stripped. It can be read from the back, but it looks like an ordinary deck. So like a bike windshield, a bike speedometer, atomic smoke bombs. Uh, see behind glasses, so basically glasses with little mirrors in them, <laughs> so you can see behind you. I mean, just stuff like that. I mean, it's it's kind of cool. Hand just to see. Grenade, Chad. Hand grenade. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, the winner is the hand grenade. <laughs> so yeah, pa- pages like this with multiple things on them is always. Hey, you can get this prize package for only fifty cents, which actually wasn't that cheap back then. Probably that wasn't as cheap mm. as you would think. Uh, let's see. For for me, obviously they're pushing Giant Flash, the annual, for for twenty five cents. Mm hmm. Eighty eighty pages, huh? That's a that's a steal. But to me, of course, and they they do a lot of Tootsie Roll placement in this in this issue, which is interesting. But I always gravitate towards the uh, the soldiers and stuff. So what I remember is. Towards the back, when you have the 132 Roman soldiers, that that's the classic. I believe that's the classic. They might have modified it a little bit, but that's the ad, give or take, that I remember them pushing these soldiers. Even though, of course, I didn't get mine until the 70s, but I do remember that that ad pretty vividly. And the last one with the 100 toy soldiers for a dollar 25. They definitely tweaked that battle scene a little bit, but the ones that came in the locker, the Foot Locker. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely had multiple versions of of those, but I think they did change the they did change uh, the artwork a little bit. But I definitely remember remember those. So th- that those are the those are the toy items I always tend to to gravitate towards, just because it, for for a long time they didn't change. You know, obviously the price probably changed, and as time went on, the kind of plastic that they used changed because they went from the like the more fragile, breakable plastic to the less breakable plastic. But 
I know they were still selling. They were still selling these. I think like into the eighties. I think the, because of the last set I ever got of anything, I believe, were in the eighties. I got another set. I got a set of those Roman guys, which were they were always yellow. They were yellow and purple. That's where they were. There was one set in yellow and one set in purple. And then I got some of the some of the games, some of like the naval action and stuff that that, that that came with the little plastic playing mats to put the ships on with the aircraft carriers. I had. I still have those downstairs. They're just not in. So, so now I'm pretty sure I got those in the 80s. So they were still at least pushing some of these old classic soldiers things for about 20 years, which is kind of impressive when you think about it. For sure. <clears throat> All right, what's next? All right, let's do let's do Jessica Jones, uh, so to speak. Uh, so what did so what did, so what did you think of season three? I really enjoyed it. Might be my favorite season. Uh, I haven't seen season one in a long time, but I know I was not impressed by season two. Uh, as a matter of fact, at this point, I can barely remember any of the events of season two, um, which is almost unnecessary uh, for season three. If you've never saw Jessica Jones season two, <clears throat> and spoilers, I mean, if you care, um, but the only real things you need to know as a result of season two are uh that uh Trish kills uh Jessica's mother and she accidentally slash purposely undergoes an experiment that could give her powers and she does end up with some powers. That's really all you need to know from season two. I think that's a fair assessment. Those are the those are the major major plot points uh that carry over and the ones that they the ones that they reference uh now, I, this is probably just me forgetting her powers. Was she always vulnerable to like knives and things like that? Jessica was Jessica was never like uh, like Luke. She yeah. had strength, but she didn't have uh, you know like okay yeah exactly because I remember Jessica making comments about it when when her and Luke were hooking up in season one. But uh, anyways, um, I mean I really enjoyed it. She's a PI, so the fact that a lot of this involves a serial killer. Uh, is is really makes the story very grounded and down to earth. A lot of it is sort of predictable um, in a way. You know the serial killer is not going to get away with it. You know there are going to be some twists and turns, and he's going to, you know, he's it, it, they they really tease up with the fact that you know one of the first things you learn about him is all the degrees on the wall. You know he's going to be the kind of guy who's going to outsmart her at a lot of different turns. Um, with Jessica, with, with Trish just going off the deep end and, you know, she kills one person, she kills another. You, you kind of learn that later towards the end, but it's very obvious she's got a violent streak in her from the, from towards the beginning of the season. So it's not, it's not hard to sort of predict where the season's going to go if you're really just open to that. Uh, and open to the fact that, you know, Jessica Jones has always been sort of a darker show. So the fall of Trish was sort of, inevitable and very predictable in some ways um um and i was sort of disappointed at the end of the first episode with with uh, jess getting stabbed only because it's like okay this is this this series is called jessica jones it's season three it's episode one she's not gonna die from this uh you know like I it, it, I know it's maybe maybe like you know there's some suspension of disbelief that needs to be happening when you watch these things that even if something is is very obvious just let it happen for the sake of the story but for me I was just like okay it's her name is Jessica Jones it's part of the show it's only episode one this isn't gonna really amount to anything and when they threw the fact in that she lost her spleen I was like okay 
maybe they're going to do something with this. And they did for a little bit, and then it just became sort of a non-factor. So I just think they had to move beyond. I just think I just think it was going to be too much of a detriment if they kind of harped on it all the time. I mean, and I and I would I would agree with you, but to just completely drop it. She was pill popping for a while though, which I think we're supposed to believe were the antibiotics. Right. Uh, uh, I this 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 is what. But I, it, it, it it may be my favorite season, but I again I haven't watched the season one in a long time. I agree. It's my, it, it is my favorite season. I think, and I've said this before. I've said this when we talked about Jessica. Je, Jessica Jones is the only one of these shows that's been on for three seasons that I actually watched all three seasons of. I've made a, I've made made no bones about the fact that I know that I'm in the minority of where I stand with the Netflix Marvel shows, and that Daredevil was not anything special to me. I like season two. Never watched season three. Tried to watch season one, but I but I got kind of got bored after like the third or fourth episode. Doesn't mean I won't go back, but it's never. But yeah, you really should watch the season three of, of Daredevil. Season three, I'm more likely to watch than season one, I'm, because I liked I liked season two and I liked the Defenders, so I liked seeing Matt go from two to three. So seeing season uh, going from two to Defenders to see Defenders to three, I could probably be okay with. But considering, and I've made, I've made it clear when we talked about this before, considering that Jessica Jones certainly in season one was inherently unlikable, and I've never been a Kristen Ritter fan either, which is partially because she always plays bitchy characters, so of course liking her is harder when you keep playing unlikable characters. Despite all that, season two they started working on humanizing her a little bit inside, and they kind of carried that forward into the Defenders a little bit. Now, the reason why I'm sure they stabbed her right off the bat in, in the first episode was because they wanted to, to they wanted to humanize her even more. They wanted to make her more vulnerable. So they, they did that. But the thing that I really like about season three, which it, and I should say it's in relation to one through three, is that we had – and they referenced this – you can make a case it's subtle. It's, it's – it may have been subtle at the time they did it, but we know it by the time you get to the end of the season that it's not subtle why they reminded you of this. That when the show began, Jessica basically, she's the hero, but she seemingly doesn't want to be, and she has no moral compass. She may not be immoral, but she's amoral. That she really has, her sense of right or wrong is really debatable at best, and it's basically Trish that is her sense of right or wrong. This is how you, know, you should use your powers for this. You shouldn't use your powers for that. And it's kind of established. That's kind of the nature of their relationship since they were kids. But as the series goes on, there's a transition going on. So by the time you end, you get to this season, and this is one of the interesting things that Salinger pointed out, the villain of the of the of the season pointed out to her that deep down Jessica because I'm not. not not only has always been a hero, but there's that part of her any way that really wanted to be or really embraced being a hero. Which is confirmed by her uh, conscience of Kilgrave at the end of the season. Yes, and among other things. But yes, you, you are correct. That, that, that change, that helping change your mind and other things in this season. But the idea that by the end, by the, by the time we get to the end of this season, which is the end of the story, as far as, you know, for, probably forever with these characters and these act, actors playing these characters. That if she and she and Trish have gone 180 degrees from where they started, 
that Jessica is a hero now, embracing being a hero, and she's the one with the moral compass. She knows what right, really what what is right, what is wrong, at least in a basic degree, what is acceptable, what you can do, what you can't do, and the repercussions if you do it. And Trish has gone from having the moral compass and not being a hero to having the power, losing the moral compass. And as Trish points out herself when she's getting ready to, you know, shortly before they start sending her off to the raft, that she has, like, this is one of the reasons I brought it, not because of Jessica Jones, but why it relates to me. Why I brought up that Dr. Manhattan moment from uh, from Doomsday Clock about him having this moment of uh, self-discovery, basically, when he realizes that despite the fact that he's done a lot of things of relevance, that at the end of the day, he's also stood by and watched a lot of things happen that he could have prevented, that deep down he is a being of an inaction, that that observation and um, – moment of self-revelation to himself, that Trish has that revelation too, a parallax-like moment, if you will, where she realizes that I'm the bad guy, that it doesn't it doesn't happen till the very end, when, but she realizes that I've, in my desire to do the right thing and be a, and be a hero and do and punish the guilty, I've crossed the line and now I'm a bad guy. So I, I, but I think the way they did that, I think, I mean, Trish, and Jessica both had character development a lot during the three seasons. You can make a case Malcolm did too, but he's kind of a peon character. Hogarth has a whole other story because she was always kind of like morally ambiguous, and it's kind of and you feel sorry for her more because of the uh, Lou Gehrig's disease that she's dealing with. And the- I didn't. I was just like everything that happened to her. I was just like every towards the, like in the towards the beginning of the series. You could feel some sympathy for for Hogarth here and there, but at this point in her story, there was never a single moment I ever felt sorry for Jaren. I think, well, for the most part, as I'm just looking at it as a whole through all three seasons. But you're because they did, they definitely, they definitely made a strong turn, a heel turn for her this season, where it makes it hard to be sympathetic for her. That, but she again, she is kind of like. She's completely. She's like the like the Larfleas of the show in the sense that she, everything she does is for her own needs, and if she she may do the right thing, but it's for her own needs, and it's just because it happens to fall into place. And she's so this is not so she's very pretty. Yeah, she is unlikable in this season. But Jessica and Trish started off in different places, but then they ended up, and I think it was, I think it was handled very well. Now, when I was watching this, the thought that obviously for me. Because since it's still depressing when I think about this, that reminds me, is you compare that to what they did in Game of Thrones. That you had three, you only had three seasons. You make a case it'd be four, almost four seasons of Game of Thrones because it's all of Jessica Jones' seasons are what thirteen episodes versus ten, right? Which were the standard Game of Thrones episodes until the last two seasons. So it's almost four, almost like four seasons of Game of Thrones. But in three seasons, well, yes, some of it was predictable. They took a character who was who was a good character in season one in Trish, and yeah, she was kind of a she was as we talked about when we talked about season two. She kind of was at least a pain in the ass and more of a problem. In you know, you can't say she was the big bad necessarily in season two, but she was. She became a liability. Yes, she was a liability. She was a pain in the ass. She wasn't likable as a character. She wasn't likable. And they did try, and they did kind of throw you maybe a borderline curve to begin the season, where she seemed to be likable in what she was doing, and she seemed to be trying to do the right thing. But the point is, 
based on everything you learned about the character, based on the natural, based on the transition of going from here to here to here, where she gets to at the end. You may not necessarily like it in the sense that going back to season one, saying, "Oh, I," especially knowing you know uh, Patsy Walker in the comic books being Hellcat and things like that, you might say, "Well, I really didn't want. I would have preferred they didn't take her in that direction." But you can't say it wasn't set up well, and you can't say it wasn't executed well. Now, you compare that to me directly with what they did with Daenerys, and there's absolutely no comparison that in much less time that Trish's fall and becoming – going from a – yes, she was more of a sidekick, but she was on the heroic side of things with a moral compass to being a, a powerful character without a moral compass, that that transition was handled much better than what we got in Game of Thrones, where we were still rooting for Daenerys in episode four, four through four, four and a half episodes out of six, and then all of a sudden she just torches the place, and because she said a few things and did a few things that some people could say were questionable in the past, we were supposed to say, oh yes, this was completely set up, and, and how could you not see this coming? No. This is, I think Jessica Jones, that's a good example for D&D, if they had done a, a, at least as good a job as the showrunners and the writers did for Jessica Jones in the three seasons related to not just Trish, but even Jessica, because Jessica is a likable character by the end of season three. I hell, it makes me even, it makes me willing to see Kristen Ritter in something for the first time, like in ages. Assuming she actually plays a different kind of role, but that's because it was executed well, and the payoff was worth the setup. And that's not what we got in Game of Thrones, and that's something that. I think that's the reason people – that's one of the main – along with the pl- the illogical plot points are things that make no sense, like why John wouldn't have been killed by the Sul- Unsullied or Dothraki and things like that. But basically the, the transition of some of these characters, especially Daenerys' heel turn, it was just not executed and the motivations were not there as well as it should have been laid out, If you, especially since you basically they probably have knew from – if they didn't know from the beginning, they probably knew for at least the last three or four seasons where Daenerys was going to end up. They had plenty of time to do this, but they didn't, and yet they did it in Jessica Jones, and that was the that was the thing that I felt the contrast of all along. And once it became clear, of course, you didn't know this when you and I briefly talked about Jessica Jones, like the last time I think we recorded or so. That obviously I was I wasn't all the way through, so you didn't get the full heel turn of of, of Trish until pretty much like episode like the second to last episode or or something like that. So you didn't really by the time obviously by the time you got into episode thirteen you knew that she was she was the one that you had to deal with. But again, the idea that oh someone who starts out as the big bad in the whole not just the whole se- series but the whole season turns out to be at the end that's again very similar to what they were trying to do in Game of Thrones. But again, they did it a lot, a lot less successfully. Uh, so that's one of the things that's one of one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Jessica Jones not because not just because I thought it was very successful on its own but it just it just cried out to me a direct contrast to what wasn't done well with uh, Game of Thrones season 8 <clears throat> what he said was important and in in terms of Jessica making the decision she did with regards to Trish at the same so I it's it I don't really need to spend much time discussing it or breaking it down but Suffice it to say, I thought the Luke Cage uh, guest appearance was utterly pointless. You could have had anybody sort of deliver that line. Now, with Luke, obviously, 
you know, it makes sense given that he had to literally face down his own brother. So the the parallels are there with a character you already know and, you know, it kind of carries weight. But, I mean, it was so brief. It was so minute. Like, I mean, it was almost like, why even have him there? So are you saying are you saying you are you saying you didn't like like it or are you saying you liked you liked it for what it was you just don't you just didn't think it was necessary because I, yes, I liked it the latter I, I liked it for what it was but like I, I think also part of it is knowing that we're not going to get another episode another season of Luke Cage and the way the last season of Luke Cage ended it had so much controversy and like really we're going to take Luke that way so that when you see him in this context you're like really that's all we're going to get of him I need to know more what happened to him maybe that's part of it um but at the same time anytime there was other team ups uh or rather little crossovers like for instance the the Danny um the the, the Danny guest appearance in in Luke's show like that was almost a full episode of them teaming up and doing something together. So, I mean, the fact that just kind of Luke stops by for maybe a five minute conversation and that's it. I was just like, ah, come on. Well, first of all, they might've done it because at that point they probably knew that, that you were never seeing Luke again. You know, by the time they finished see, filming the last episode of Jessica Jones, I'm pretty sure that was after, uh, Luke Cage was already canceled, but he, but it, it's, but, it kind of comes full circle too. That's the one thing I also like about about Jessica Jones is, even if they didn't one hundred percent know the show was never coming back after by the time they started filming it, it kind of seems like they did. You kind of feel like there's, you kind of got closure, not because she wasn't going to stop being a hero. It's not obviously even because she's even leaving town like she was originally going to, but it's feel. Well, I mean, I think it. I think it's confirmed by what Luke says. That they knew it wasn't coming back at the time because Luke says something to the effect of, and I hope someone cares about me enough that if I cross the line, they'll bring me down. So it's, it's almost sort of confirming that, okay, Luke, you know, based on the last season of, of Luke Cage, Luke will eventually take a turn and someone will eventually take him down and maybe it'll be Jessica. I, I mean – I guess you could read into it that way. I I just I just read it. I mean, it could it, to me there would be more foreshadowing if we knew we were getting a stunt of the season because we know where they left off with him being in literally in that Michael Corleone role taking of taking over as the Godfather and even having that door closed the way they did when you know when he's like to the sim you know exactly how the Godfather ended sh- shutting the kind of like shutting the door either shutting the door on people close to him shutting the door on his past and this was going to be a new path for him and not a good path. But it can definitely be interpreted that way. I think it was more a philosophical point, just like you know. Dan- and on that level, to me, it works. Like Dan- you know, Danny, Danny stopped by, and Danny needed to tell to help Luke with a problem he was having and, and make him see something from a different perspective. And that's what, and that's the same thing that Luke was doing with Jessica. And they're obviously their relationship clearly is different than most of the other relationships between superheroes on the show. Uh, much more intimate that the reality is, I think like exactly like you said, the fact that he basically had to take a, take down his own brother, literally. So that is what Trish is going to, that's what Trish is facing. That the, the, the knowledge that she has to do it, even though she doesn't want to do it and she has to do whatever, basically shot, she has to do what's necessary, no matter what where that takes her. 
Which is interesting because she still does it in a way that she doesn't have to kill Trish. Because if you go back to the season two, part of the issue was that Jessica really deep down knew she probably needed to kill her mother, but she couldn't do it. Yeah. Which is... But I thought it was good. I thought season three was good. I w- yeah, really I would, enjoyable. I would be all in for season four, which we know we're not getting, but I'd be all in now, just like I would be in for – but then again, as we all know with most of these shows, they were – you know, whether it's setting up Colleen in Iron Fist and what Danny's new powers were and how he got them, I, would, I was looking forward to that continuing. I was looking forward to where they were going to go with Luke because it was such an odd and interesting change. For Luke putting him in that position, so it's, it is unfortunate. At least Jessica, I think Jessica has the most closure, and it, and it leaves and it leaves the most has the fewer unanswered questions based on how it could have. I mean, you know, her story was not going to end because she's just generally speaking, but you don't feel like there's a major thing that you didn't get on that show. I think that needed to be answered at least about the main character. And plus they redeemed plus they redeemed the main character. One of my biggest complaints was you can't keep having the show be about Jessica Jones if she's going to be the most unlikable character in the show. That was kind of like untenable, unsustainable. And they and whether that was always their intent or not, they clearly knew themselves and transitioned away from that because she became more likable in season two. And obviously she completely changed in season three. So it was good. It was and again because of the how it directly contrasts for me for Game of Thrones, I thought it was. I thought it was worth discussing. All right, anything else? Yeah, let's let's talk ever so briefly about the uh, that, the great re-release of Endgame. Uh, I assume you haven't seen it. No, I've still only seen Endgame once. I want to see it uh, just because I want to see it again in theaters. Just, I mean, this this the spectacle on on the on the big screen uh, has nothing to do with helping it cross the the Avatar mark, but. Um, you know, I just you know I want to see those 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 key scenes on the big screen again before it's, it leaves theaters. So. I've, I've seen it twice, uh, not the re-release, the original. Uh, it's hard calling something a re-release in my mind when it hasn't even left the theaters to begin with, which is part of the problem here. I I'm going to probably see it. I will probably see the re-release <clears throat> see the re-release again because I don't I wouldn't mind seeing it on the big screen again. I think Endgame is inherently. I'm watching it twice. I think inherently to me, Endgame is more watchable than Infinity War. And I mean all the way through without fast-forwarding through shit. Infinity War, there's lots of stuff to watch, but I don't care about a lot of the Thanos stuff with Gamora and things like that. I know it's relevant to the plot. It just doesn't have any interest to me upon rewatching. So there's lots of stuff on, on Endgame that – I mean excuse me, on Infinity War that I can forward through. So I, will, so I will watch this stuff. I'm certainly not going for the extra stuff because it's, it's nothing a consequence. So Chad and I talked about this off air when they because I think the last time we actually recorded was right when they right around the time they were the the, the first story from Feige about about the idea of this being re-released last weekend when it was first being coming out and being floated and not 100% confirmed and what was going to be in it was not confirmed and I thought then I and I think it I think now it was a, it was a bad move it was a bad move because the timing was poor to begin with. Uh, from a box office perspective, it did do good money considering how where it was beforehand. It did like six, it did a little over six million dollars domestically. I think it did like about two million, like two point three million overseas. So, but overall, it didn't even make ten million dollars during its re-release. Maybe it'll get a little bit of traction. It'll still hold a little bit of traction this week because it's a holiday. July Fourth this week is really weird. Uh, whether you know whether it's going to get with a lot of people. Can, 
were off at the end of last week, rolling into this week, or they're off during the week, or both. They might get some more business during the week that they normally might, uh, and maybe a little bit on the weekend, but I doubt it. I think most people are transitioning completely to Spider-Man Far From Home. I like the way some of this stuff is being spun now, like, oh, they really released this now, the post-release, post re-release, that, oh, this is really being done to help Spider-Man Far From Home. Yeah, I really don't think that. Uh, I don't think Spider-Man Far From Home really needed it, and it's just uh, this was to me this was this made no sense to re-release this now. But they, but when they made this decision to re-release this movie, this was the least amount of interest uh, for seeing Endgame on the big screen probably since we ever since we first found out there were going to be two basically Infinity Stone driven movies for the Avengers. This movie has played 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 its course out. Nobody cared. The time you re-release a movie is after it leaves the theater, because people get people get like sentimental and they want and they want to see it on the big screen again. So if they had, in my mind, all along, the best time to re-release this friggin' thing was next spring, like a month. Assuming Black Widow was going to be the May release, and again, it keeps annoying me. They won't even confirm that that's the May release, even though we know it's the only Marvel movie filming now. San Diego. Oh yeah, I'm sure I'd say, but it, but, but it's just. I'm so I'm just I think Marvel is this is my opinion. I think Marvel is riding that fine line between ego and just being a little just being a little too self self-sure of themselves where they could shoot themselves in the foot. And you can make the case that this re-release though it's not going to be a major problem for them was a sh- they did shoot themselves in the foot because they didn't push it. This movie was almost entirely driven by I think the re-release through, for social media. It was, you know, it was, it was. They did not have a big time frame to push this movie. Again, if I, they release this movie next, beginning of April next year, like a month before Black Widow comes out, I bet you this thing would have made up them. Because as we speak, they still need. I think they still need. I think like about twenty six million dollars or something to, to beat, uh, to beat uh, Avatar worldwide, which they're not going to get. They're not. Gonna, this movie does not have that much money left in it. In the box office during this run, it just it just doesn't. Obviously, this is getting them closer. They're at they are at twenty they are at twenty seven six four as of as of today. They need to get to uh, twenty seven eight eight. So it's they're twenty four a little bit less, basically like twenty three million dollars behind. They're they're not it's they're not they're not going to get that. They had had a like a ten or fifteen million dollar opening weekend domestically with this re release. Yeah, they probably would have squeaked over, squeaked over it. But they're not, they're not going to get it. If they release this movie a month before Black Widow comes out next May, they do this beginning of April and they push it. Even if they don't put a lot of extras on it, they probably would have had like a twenty to thirty million dollar opening weekend and for the re-release, I think. And then it's just, this would be all moot. They could still try to do that, but I think they. Sh- but, but but I think by releasing it like this and it's really essentially failing to do anything of consequence. I think it damages them if they want to re-release it again, because it seems like even more of a cash grab then. So I think it was poor timing. I think this was a poor decision. I think they did not need to do it now. They could have waited and been more likely to succeed. They could have released it in friggin' November. They could have probably done that and, and got and gotten this. But by doing it now, there's there's so little interest in seeing it, and they gave people no extra incentive to go in it because that friggin' Hulk scene that's unfinished. And the tribute to Stanley, which I know a lot of people will like, but all this stuff is also supposed to be on the on the Blu-ray. 
So uh, to me it was to be to me it was a mistake. To me Marvel being so damn coy with what Phase Four is going to be, when we all know they're filming Black Widow, is it going to kill anybody to tell us? Yes, Black Widow is the May release. They don't. I don't see why the hell they have to play these games with at least that movie. So I, I think they are. I think they are riding the fine line of believing themselves to be infallible. And then we have to see what the movies are going to be when probably, yes, in San Diego, we're probably going to have an idea what Phase 4, what the Phase 4 movies are going to be and when they're going to be released. So whether The Eternals is going to be the second movie out next year or not, we'll have to see. But I think sometimes they're just, I don't know, I think it's like, and I don't know whose idea this was. I don't know if this was Marvel Studios' idea to release Endgame now, whether this was Disney pushing it to get them over the top now. Either way, I think it was a bad move. I think ultimately it's it's certainly everything indicates it's going to fail in accomplishing what it really needed to accomplish, and I I just don't get it. I think it was that's a jumping the gun thing. It's it's it, it's weird. I mean, re-release. The reason why it's supposed to be a re-release is because it's supposed to be out of the theater before it comes back, and there's an interest in seeing it. Nothing wrong with re-releasing it. Nothing wrong with re-releasing it multiple times. Star Wars was re-released a gazillion times, but I. To me, to me, they ran. I thought they had one good shot at this. Doesn't mean they can't. Doesn't mean they could. I think if they, re, who knows? People like this movie enough that maybe if they do re-release it in April next year, maybe it still will make enough, even if it's a smaller amount now than it would have been if they hadn't done this, you know, this stutter step. But I just think that to me, there, there, it was a slam dunk. They would have gotten this if they just waited and then re-released it. And I just don't see the point of this because it ultimately, it's no matter how they want to pump it up and say, oh, you look at all, you know, we we got back into the top ten. It's like, yeah, but you you put look at how many more screens it went on. So I I, I just think it was a bad move. Not a, it's not a killer move. It's not a disaster. It's not a but it was not more one of Marvel's finest moments. I don't think, and it did, certainly didn't accomplish what ultimately their goal was. If their goal was really to get closer to Avatar, and seemingly that's what it really I believe it was. Gotcha. All right. You want to close this out and tell people how to reach us? <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, yes. Yes, I'll do that. Lanterncast.com is the website. Lanterncast at gmail.com is the best place to contact us. Uh, we haven't had much feedback lately, people. Feed us! Uh, we are on iTunes and Stitcher, so whichever platform you listen to us on, please leave us a positive review. Also, Twitter and Facebook. Use hashtag GLCast to locate us on either one of those. And last but not least, 708 Lantern. And let us know what you think. All right, guys. We'll talk to you later. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>